set. Good Friday afternoon, guys. I'm Jerry Miller. Welcome to the I Love Seville show. Thank you kindly for joining us live in downtown Charlottesville from our building, the Macklin Building, on a show presented by Scott Wagner of Scott Wagner Integrated Medicine. Who's got your back? Dr. Wagner of Scott Wagner Integrated Medicine has your back. Today's show is loaded. We took yesterday off. We're back in the saddle today. We'll talk UVA basketball and the loss in the first round, a loss that stung all of us. It was demoralizing. Folks are responding emotionally today, and I understand that emotion. However, the hatred I'm seeing to a point guard that's five foot seven, that spent five years of his life in an orange and blue uniform bleeding for us, I do not understand. I'll lead with that in about 45 seconds. I'll talk Laura Fawner. Laura Fawner is the chef and owner of Siren Restaurant in the old Shabin location at Vinegar Hill. Yesterday, she offered clarity in a post that frankly, is, is, is the definition of honesty. Laura Foner, your social media post was absolutely amazing. We'll highlight her statement that she made yesterday on Facebook that's gone viral, a statement that really puts in perspective um, Hunter Smith's financial negligence when it comes to the uh, Champion Hospitality Group. We'll also chatter Deshaun Cooper pulling out of the Virginia delegate race. He's now running for city council. There's only three people running for council right now in their three spots. Michael Payne, Lloyd Snook, and now Deshaun Cooper. Well, I'm very curious to see if Leah Perrier will enter the race, but right now there's three open spots and three people <coughs> running. That topic on the show, and Emily Morrison has resigned as the executive director of The Front Porch. She founded this nonprofit. We'll offer some perspective into Morrison's legacy and all the positive, positive things she's done at The Front Porch. First, I'm going to talk basketball, then a two-shot with Judah on the Laura Foner statement. The loss yesterday stung. It was miserable. I watched it firsthand. Second half... The team, again, goes on a massive scoring drought. Um, Kia Clark, five-year impact player. He's going to be remembered for the greatest pass in UVA history, the pass to Mamini Diakite and the win on the way to a national championship. And he's also going to be remembered for this errant pass in the first round of the NCAA tournament against Fer- uh, Fer- Furman. Um, this was just it was uh, not a good play. Regardless, the hate I'm seeing for Kia Clark is unwarranted. You have a national champion. You have a five foot seven player with the most wins in ACC history, the most wins, obviously, in UVA history, the most assists in UVA history. This guy is the definition of winner. And as we work our way through this emotional response, I think people will realize that Kia is on the Mount Rushmore of UVA basketball. And I do not want to see this pass define a five-year career that is absolutely full of accolades and trophies and hardware. One of the greatest players of all time. Please, let's remember that. And when it's all said and done, this is a 22, 23-year-old. He's not getting paid to play. Ripping him like folks are doing on social media is absurd. Please stop. Please stop. Let's go to the two-shot, and let's welcome Judah Wickhauer, the director, to the show. Judah, you and I were talking about this yesterday. Laura Foner's post... Truth bomb. We use the phrase truth bomb. In the first, fourth paragraph of her post, it was truth bomb. She literally offers clarity into what happened at Siren under the Champion Hospitality Group umbrella. From 
financial malpractice to just straight-up sketchy behavior from the principal of Champion Hospitality Group, Hunter Smith. Yeah. I want you, I want to get your perspective. I'm going to offer mine. I think we have the statement we can put on screen. I think yeah. we got photos we can put on screen. If you want to take a look at this yourself, it's on Laura Finder's Facebook page. She's the executive chef and owner of Siren in the old Shabine location. You probably know her from the Food Network or from Dooner's Restaurant. She is A-plus people. She and I have had some differences from time to time. Regardless, it doesn't change how I feel about her. She is an A-plus person, and she calls it how she sees it. What did you make of this statement? I mean, just speaking of her being an A-plus person, I've got to – I commend her on, on not naming names. Uh, this is a damning post, and she was classy enough to not uh, – to not point any fingers or name any names. I'll name the I names. Think, Hunter Smith. I, I think I'll we, name the names. I was just going to say, we all know who it is. Yeah. But uh, I appreciate the fact that... Uh, she, She's watching right now, by the way. She keeps it... Uh, she keeps it... She high, keeps it real. High class. Yeah. <clears throat> Definitely the, the exact opposite of, uh, of Hunter Smith. She talks about, you, sir, rode the coattail of someone in the most vulnerable moment of their life. You, sir, were in charge of finances for a restaurant that I personally poured my blood, sweat, and tears into while renovating my own two hands. A restaurant that could have opened its doors debt-free because I sacrificed everything. To be able to open in that way was a gift, a gift I provided, and you ruined it. She's not the first chef that's spoken on the record about financial malpractice. Chris Humphrey, who is now working at the Whiskey Jar, talked about the financial uh, malpractice he saw firsthand at Brasserie Cezanne, or however you say this restaurant in the downtown mall. Laura Fonner offers the most clarity and explanation, the best clarity and explanation. I, I, I truly think, Hunter, and I know you watch this program, that you need to legitimately issue a statement, not through Mary Jean Jaggers and Jaggers Communication, but a statement that you've done yourself personally, A statement where you say, I'm sorry. I have yet to see from Hunter Smith on the record, on social media, on Instagram where he's vacationing and talking about the green he likes to smoke. I've yet to see him do a post on social media where he says, I'm sorry. I'm to blame for this. I overextended. I did this at a time during COVID where there was a lot of uncertainty. I pushed the limits and it backfired and a lot of people suffered. I missed payroll. I hurt families. I impacted relationships. People that counted on me to pay their bills, their rent, their mortgages, their water bill, their cell phone bill, their electric bill, they struggled to do so because of my negligence. We have not seen that from Hunter Smith. I am sorry. Those three words carry a lot of weight. And the extent of what we've seen so far is PR management through Mary Jean Jagger's firm, Jagger's Communication. The extent of what we've seen so far is some excuse making. The extent of what we've seen so far is wait till you see what's coming next. Some teasers or some predictions or some crystal balls. But we have not seen three of the most important words in the American and English language. I am sorry. Right below, I love you from an important standpoint. So, Hunter, start with that. It's time. And I don't like to call out small businesses like this, but where there's smoke, there's fire. Chris Humphrey last week, Laura Fawner this week. And the Daily Progress has done a fantastic job of covering this story, Alice Berry in particular. Alice Berry of the Daily Progress. 
Go to Laura Foner's Facebook page. This is a story that needs to be told to the thousands of readers you have. Because this kind of malpractice, this kind of preying on the working class, as Laura Foner has said, is, is, is despicable. How would, do you characterize it any other way? Um, I got two TV stations watching us right now. I don't think I would characterize it any other way. I think that, uh, that about says it. Um, and I, I think you're right. Uh, it, it may not mean much to a lot of people at this point, but I am sorry goes a long way uh, when, when people see that you mean it. Yeah. I am sorry. Two paragraphs that resonate with me. If you know Laura Foner, you know she loves the F word. And I respect it. I love the <laughs> F word as well. She says this. You stole, stole, you sir stole from me money, trust, more money. You stole a part of my soul. The pandemic did enough of that, but then here you go wanting more. It's always more, 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 more. F you. F you for preying on the working class. F you for your fake philanthropy work. F you for not taking responsibility for ruining people's lives with your poor business practices. This post is explosive and justified. Read it. Laura, this took guts. <clears throat> guts. You should be commended. And I think you will find that the community will rally around you and support Siren at an even greater clip after this gutsy, honest post. Hunter, I am sorry. That's what you need to do now. Stop the PR mumbo-jumbo. Uh, all right, Bellamy Brown, T-minus two minutes away. Before I get to Bellamy Brown, I want to talk on the curfew topic. Jim Hingley, Commonwealth Attorney, Elmore County, I believe he's watching now as well. He was watching Wednesday when this topic came up, and he sent us a number of... Um, I'm not a, an attorney, Jim. What, what, what is this that you DM me? How would you characterize this? Memos, um, cases, maybe case law. Case, you know, I, I don't have the exact language. But the curfew topic, which is now prevalent in Roanoke. Roanoke City is struggling with gun violence right now. So they're about to implement a curfew or enforce a curfew. The law is already on the books. But the law in Roanoke would be if you're 16 or under, you cannot be on the street or outside your house after 11 o'clock, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. You have a midnight curfew if you're 16 or under on Friday and Saturday. I, I think this is a no-brainer, man. I think this is a no-brainer. It's a law that already exists. The police are going to start enforcing it now in Roanoke. And the question is here in Charlottesville, should the police be doing the same since we're struggling with gun violence? Obviously, the first thing that the viewers and listeners have said, that this is an opportunity for police to profile, stop and frisk, and then teenagers of color will be disproportionately targeted by police more so than teenagers that are white. That's a reality. That will happen. That's collateral damage and the unfortunate nature of a law like this. That will happen, what I just said. Should Charlottesville enforce this curfew as well? It's a law that's already on the books for this city. It's just not enforced. Uh, I mean, I guess I see it as, as possibly part of the solution, but I don't personally think it's going to do a whole lot to, uh, to curb any of the problems that we're seeing. I think that... Uh, I think that really what's going what's gonna to help this city is getting to the heart of the problem. Uh, you, can, you can include all the, uh, you know, all the extra little bits and pieces like, like uh, upholding a, a curfew, but I think uh, finding out where all of this is, is starting, 
where it's coming from and addressing the issues that are leading to it is going to do a lot more than um, some stopgap measures. I agree with that. That's very well said. I think the curfew is part of the silver buckshot, to steal a phrase from Keith Smith and Robert, Robert Liberty. Um, the policing districts, and we're going to ask all these topics to Bellamy Brown in about 45 seconds, okay? The policing districts, the community forums, the walk and talks, the data, the heat maps, the curfews, the, the, these new age policing strategies are the silver buckshot utilized today to keep violence in check. It's just a tool in the tool back, the curfew. It's not going to solve the gun and drug and gang violence. I'm going to ask Bellamy what we need to do to solve that. Before we get the three-shot ready or the two-shot first with Mr. Brown, because Deshaun Cooper, his opponent in the delegate race, is no longer his opponent. He is now Cooper, the young Democrat running for city council. This was big-time news. So the delegate race is now three Dems. Colson, who was on the show last Friday, Katrina, her camp is watching. Bellamy Brown and Dave Norris. Okay, we welcome friend of the program, Bellamy Brown. I've called him the most eligible bachelor in Central Virginia. <laughs> Don't do that. I've often said one of the <laughs> most dressed, best dressed people in Central Virginia. <laughs> First, hello. Second, Introduce yourself to the few folks that don't know who you are, and then I'm going to follow your lead. Where do you want to go on a St. Patty's Day Friday? Um, and don't say Citizen Burger Bar because we got to finish the interview first. Let's. I we mean, can do that I know, later. I, I, those are those are my people. Um, what was the introduce myself? Yeah. Um, yeah. So um, obviously uh, Bellamy Brown, um, born and raised uh, here in Charlottesville. Um, have been uh, came back home in twenty. I, my dad moved us to Northern Virginia and uh, after my sophomore year of high school. I uh, was in the D.C. area uh, for quite some time and came back home in 2018 to kind of help um, get in public policy, get in, you know, serve our community uh, based on, you know, what I saw after uh, 2017. Um, obviously, you know, lost city council, uh, but got uh, appointed to the oversight board and was able to do some uh, meaningful work there. Um, was actually at a Virginia conference of open government yesterday where um, Chair Mendez was there representing uh, the city of Charlottesville along with, you know, folk from Fairfax, Leesburg, um, you know, across the Commonwealth, people from Richmond. So we do have that um, credibility um, that we were looking to establish um, here. Um, and I just, I mean, you know, I guess the rest will come out over, over the campaign. I think uh, a lot of people know me whether good or bad <laughs> over the past couple of years. Um, but, uh, yeah. I think when it's all said and done, the guy cares about the community, and it's a community he was raised in. Yeah. And that's a huge differentiating point between his competition. This yeah. guy was born here. Yeah. He grew up here. Yeah. Um, why don't we talk about the topic that everyone's been consumed with, gun violence, drug sure. violence, gang violence. Shows yours on that topic here. I sure. saw you at the community forum. Yes. Um, Two Mondays ago, yeah. listening to learn. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we're talking about Citizen Burger. So, um, um, so Pat is a good friend of mine, Patrick here. McClure. Yes, great uh, guy. Yes, he obviously owns uh, Lucky Blues yep. and um, Bright Side upstairs. Yeah. Well, if you remember, toward the end of last year, uh, gun violence happened in his uh, restaurant, and then you know someone. Um, died from that. Uh, that's where I began. Well, my eyes started to open, and I began looking at 
the entirety of our community, what's going on, trying to do research and, and really get to to where we are. So that's what I've been doing for however many months have, have been going on. Um, I think <clears throat> Almore County uh, uh, Police Chief has been very forthcoming and, and open with regard to where things stand, with regard to gun violence, gangs, what's being, um, you know, how kids are being responsive. Um, he's saying that this is not arrest and a type of arrest everyone, you know, scenario um, because the kids aren't responding to that. Um, and that coincides with the information that I hear from the community, from the community, from the streets that, you know, this is, they're not responding. They have a, a, a different uh, perspective on, on what they're, you know, trying to accomplish. Um, there is also this idea, well, they're, they're able to get access to guns um, relatively easily. Um, and, you know, I've been talking to several folk, and apparently there looks like there's a loophole that allows them to do that. Someone can purchase a gun legally and then go, you know, street and, and do their thing. And, and again, from none of, none of this information I received from law enforcement um, around here in the community, I take what they put publicly with what I, you know, get from the streets, from the community. Um, and, you know, the kids are are able to get access to guns, you know, that way. And they take videos and, and do the whole nine. Um, this didn't happen overnight. This is something that we as a community, Charlottesville, has uh, incubated for quite some time. Uh, when you look at some of the, uh, the age groups uh, from 15 to, you know, 19, 20, 21-year-old, you know, black males um, coming out of COVID, uh, you know, with, well, just coming out of high school, coming out of COVID, what are the, what opportunities exist for them to go from high school into something that's going to be positive and impact their life uh, in, in, a, in a meaningful way? There just isn't any. There wasn't any when I grew up. I mean, we had, we had some outlets with, re, with regard to, um, you know, camps and basketball and things like that, but they've since, you know, taken those things away. Um, so it's like, you know, you you don't you have that environment set up. They are, from my understanding, they you know listen. I don't know if you know what drill music is, but you know they listen to drill music. They um, they develop you know friendships, families around the people that they know and who are like them in the same scenario. And when you have those types of incidents where you where you were friends at school, COVID comes, that kind of separates, and then you go into these little cliques, you know, and, and things like that. You just, you, you have a situation where there needs to be a lot more care. There should have been a lot more care a long time ago. There should have been efforts to um, uh, create opportunities for them to go into as opposed to the same old for the black community, primarily for the black community in Charlottesville with nothing. Um, so it's, it's, it's not gonna happen overnight. I think we're in, where we see the gun violence is in that particular spectrum where we haven't given them any type of hope or things like that. So we gotta um, find ways to, to give them hope, give them opportunity to change the cycle. It won't happen overnight. Um, it has to be a collective effort, you know, law enforcement, um, 
community leaders, nonprofits, you know, across the board, because this affects our entire community. Um, Ms. Coulson said uh, last week that... On the show? Yes. Okay, her camp is watching. The number one issue here, or the number one, I guess, issue is, is women's rights or reproductive rights. And it's not to say that that's not an important issue, but I have elderly folk coming at me worrying about bullets coming through their homes. I have, you know, folk worried about walking down the street getting hit by a stray bullet. And I think that people want to stay alive first and foremost. Um, and I think that that is, I mean, that's a thing that's, that we're working collectively here uh, in Charlottesville, but also across the nation. Um, one of the I think when we, when we started to see, so typically when you have gun violence, there should be a lull through the winter months. And we didn't have that at all. And that, it expedited. Yes. And that, and that is alarming for me. So I, so I started to automatically just go into, you know, Marine, like security mode, assessing the situation, the whole nine. And again, I'm not law enforcement. I'm only speaking for me. There, you know, there are some, you know, concerns, you know, that I have. Um, it's good to see that there is a collaboration across the board between between the three, you know, police departments, between the, you know, Commonwealth Attorney's Office, um, FBI, the whole nine. Um, but I also like the approach that, again, arresting everyone is not going to solve the problem. We have to do, we have to provide meaningful solutions, um, such as. Um, in Richmond, there was uh, something called GRIP. I think it's the Gang Reduction uh, Improvement Plan that they utilized, uh, and it, it was primarily in the African American and, and Hispanic communities. And again, it was you know helping to provide meaningful options that offset some of these other choices that you know, quite frankly, kids are, are left to make. You know, so it's not there's no it's a like you said it's a silver buckshot. There's no you know silver bullet. Even when we look at you know. You can say, oh, well, we'll do this gun law. We'll do that gun law. Let's go back to, let's go back to uh, the three UVA students. There, um, you know, the, the football guy, players who were murdered? Yes. The guy had a gun charge that was a felony initially, um, got knocked down to a misdemeanor, and that's what allowed him to purchase the other gun that he, you know, utilize. That's, that's one avenue. That's, is that a criminal just? Is that a thing of, oh, well, we're trying to do criminal justice reform, so we'll give you a chance. You're, you know, he was a you know, star student the whole nine. Is, is, that, is that one avenue that has to be you know, looked at? We talk about um, you know, my cousin's fiance, Skeeta. <laughs> the court under, under the uh, first, step, first Step Act, that's how um, Mr. Keyes got out. The court was clear that it was concerned about his lack of rehabilitation or commitment to rehabilitation. But because of the way the act was written, the court had no choice but to let him out. That's another avenue. So it's not, there are different things that have to be uh, taken into consideration. I, as a Marine, um, you know, I was trained with weapons since I was 17 years old. One of the things that, uh, that was done in the Marines was that you were held responsible for your weapon or it was properly secured. And if you didn't have your weapon around, 
and somebody got access to it, then there was a price to be paid. We don't have those same standards out in, uh, in the civilian sector. And so we have to, we have to get to more um, gun owner responsibility. We have to close whatever this loophole is that's allowing folk to buy them legally and then go and sell them to kids on the street. Um, and those are, I mean, those are just a couple of, you know, again, a, a silver buckshot. But it's, it, it's a collective effort. I would say that, you know, if you're talking about housing and everything else, that's perfectly fine. But if you've got a house with bullets coming through the window, 10th and Page, some of those places are, um, you know, what, 500, 400 plus. You've got bullets coming through the window. You know, it's not. So I would say that this is a, a high priority. Um, you know, within our community. Diana Burris giving you some props right now. Questions coming in. Um, Albert Graves, a voter in your district, um, has got some comments for you as well. Um, Anonymous has got a comment that I will get to as well. He also says Bob Fenwick is very much in the Charlottesville City Council race and should have his signatures in line by Monday. So Fenwick in the race for council once these signatures are lined up. I w- uh, this topic here, new police chief. Mm-hmm. All right, first I'm going to backtrack. Sean Reeves, Albemarle County Police Chief, says in the middle of this week that this is the first time in five years the departments have been working together. And I interpreted that as shade to Dr. Brackney, the former police chief. From what I've seen here, and you have a lot more intelligence than I do when it comes to this, from what I've seen here, the Brackney tenure and term was so tumultuous that it alienated and polarized the other departments from working alongside the CPD, along with causing a third of the department to essentially quit or go vacant. A third of the department is empty right here. What did you make of Sean Reeves, Almaro County Police Chief, saying this is the first time in five years that the ACPD, the CPD, and the University Police Department have been basically at the table working together? I mean, that's... It's a shocking statement. I mean, that's, that's for him to... I mean, he's the, again, he's the police chief. He's, a, he's a, you know, free to comment however he would like. Any, any comment... Anything related to um, the tumultuous time with regard to the police oversight or any of that, I leave at the doors of the U.S. District Court. And they spoke, or it spoke, pretty clearly. Okay, that's fair. That's fair right there. Um, Policing districts. Mm -hmm. Your thoughts on that? Tenth and Page, Fifeville, and the UVA corner, the three policing districts. What do you make of the policing district strategy? Sure, so... um, the way that I understood it, that uh, you know, Chief Cotchis explained it, uh, it's really more of of a of an area that they are going to be have have greater presence in, um, in terms of trying to you know get to get to know the community, try to build those relationships again to help you know ideally uh, bring down some of the crime uh, in those particular areas. Um, you can't <clears throat> if the data says that that's where you know, a lot of the, the challenges are happening. You, I mean, you can't ignore the data. So, um, but it's not, you know, it doesn't appear that he's taking an approach of like, all right, we're going in with an iron fist and we're just going to, you know, go ahead and, and, and tear things down. So um, I've always been a fan of the community policing aspect of, um, I have a, you know, a friend that's worked in the Justice Department and the Office of Community-Oriented Policing. So, I mean, I've always been, that, I mean, that's always been a deal for me. Um, Ms. Beard has often spoke of, of the time when, you know, we were growing up 
uh, with, I grew up with her, her sons and what have you, where they would have horses, you know, police would come around on horsebacks, build those relationships. Still remember one of the horses named Chico, you know, he was the coolest one. But it's like, you know, getting back to those spaces of, of building those relationships. Um, <clears throat> I will say from my experience on the oversight board, with regard to policing, both locally, nationally, and internationally, I, I um, have looked at, at things from that perspective. And the U.S. does a horrible job across the board in terms of the training that it provides uh, the folk that you know, they're putting out on the, on the street uh, to do the policing. Um, and so I would, I would emphasize you know, more, of the, more of the training. We can go, let's take a look at the um, Elmore County SRO deal. Um, SRO coming back to Albemarle High School, $126,000 in the budget for next fall. Yes. So my question, I mean, they, you know, they initially said, oh, it was taken out because of uh, ineffectiveness and, and discrimination. <laughs> I mean, well. Pipeline okay. to prison is what was said. The yeah. SRO in hallways of public schools. Yeah. Pipeline to prison. Yeah. The, the, what, they, what they were quoted as uh, ineffectiveness and, and discrimination. So they've been gone for two years. Did the ineffectiveness and discrimination suddenly disappear? Like what, you know, what, what was that really about? Um, but my question, going back to the SRO deal, is are we sticking police officers in the schools and calling them SROs, or are we actually sending them through SRO-specific training where it talks about how do you deal with, um, you know, the students that they are um, – I guess serving or and build relationships with them, and that unlike that's your focus, and you're working through the mental health type of deal. Do is that what we is that what we're presenting, or are we presenting just an officer and saying you're an SRO? Because I think if we go again going into the whole training aspect, I think there's a lot of mileage that can be gained out of that. Um, I had done bias-based policing um, analysis and, and added. Uh, and a recommendation for the oversight board. And, and in that, I included a study from a Stanford professor who uh, took a group of white citizens, took a group of white police officers, and you know, there was black assailant. And the study was who was more likely to kill the black assailant. And it came out, it was the white civilians. And it was attributed to the fact that the officers had some level of training as opposed to none at all. So the, the aspect of proper training, quality training, I think can go a long way. Our, our policing system is significantly like flawed um, at, at all levels, um, and, and there have to be adjustments that, you know, that, you know made to, to rectify that. DCJS, and I, I've heard it from police officers and other folk, doesn't, I mean, it's like the bare minimum. They don't necessarily do everything that they should in terms of, you know, preparing folk uh, fully to be out uh, in the police force. So um, I would look at um, how do we get, you know, better training to, to obviously achieve a better outcome for our community. Um, James Watson, friend of the program watching, yeah. he says, Brother Bellamy, thank you for committing um, to always serving, always listening to the community, and being focused on providing opportunities for our youth. James Watson, we love you. We love when you watch the show and you comment. Yeah. Deep Throat is saying on Twitter that you are a cut above the rest, so you're getting some props right there. Albert Graves has got some questions for you, which we'll get to in a matter of moments. So does Kevin Higgins in Amaro County. So you got a lot of voters um, watching here. Um, do you think 
Hotchis has gone about this the right way so far? I mean, we, so, for, we forget he hasn't even been on the job three months. Well, yeah, so that's, and that's the other thing. So, in, 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 so I'm, you know, my background is in business. I've uh, been in the business community for over 15 years, several of those years as an executive. When you're coming into any new role, um, there is a, a ramp-up period upon which you, you have to go. For me, I typically will say that that's about six months before you really understand and know what's going on. He literally had been, you know, was here for like six weeks, and they're like, "Well, have, why haven't you fixed this yet?" You got. I think you have to to give that time period for some of these things to to uh, to work out, and for for you to evaluate them properly. You can't say we're going to implement something unless it's you know a small whatever project. But when you're doing project planning, you can't say, "Okay, we're going to start it here. We're going to evaluate it," you know, three three months later when realistically you could, it should be evaluated a year later or what have you. So you have to give him time um, to work. I don't, you know, there, there's discussion about, oh, whether or not the gun buyback program, you know, should be implemented or the curfew or what have you. As, as far as I'm concerned, like, he's a department head and he has to run his department and provide public safety in the way that he sees fit the outcomes will show themselves at a later date, and you will be able to evaluate, we will be able to evaluate what those outcomes are, whether or not they're working at that point. So I would say, you know, we have to give him to be opportunity. Yeah. yeah, we have to give him opportunity to, to see what his policies and everything, if they're working or not. Um, tough question. What separates you from Norris and Coulson? I mean, that's your competition now. This race sure. is determined in June. Sure. So, so we think- know in what? Less than 90 days? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think, I mean, for, for one, um, now that Deshaun's out, I'm, the, again, the only one who's uh, from here, who's been through uh, Charlottesville Public Schools. Um, I'm the only veteran in, in, the, uh, in the race. I'm the only one with a business background who has, who has had a continuous you know, career on solving problems, identifying problems, implementing solutions, and, and making sure that the, and evaluating those solutions as to whether or not they're effective. Um, I, mean, there's, there, I mean, there's so many things. I think one of the things that, that concerns me uh, about Ms. Ms. Coulson, uh, per se, is, is some of her representations. Um, so, for instance, uh, I guess, She's saying when she gets, you know, this question about whether she's from Charlottesville here in 2023, quote unquote, it's complicated and then goes into this this whole, you know, this whole story. Whereas in October of 2017, she was really clear uh, with Charlottesville tomorrow that she was born and raised on military bases around the world. In addition, her parents and her extended family are all from Scottsville, Fredericksburg and Stanton. None of those are Charlottesville. None of those are ties to Charlottesville. But in 2023, there seems to be this, um, I don't know, this, this misrepresentation. Um, the other part is she clearly, in her public profile, says that she's from Germany, and she went to high school in Germany. There's no, I mean, there's no real need to not you know, say, okay, this is where I'm from. So that gives me pause. Other ask, would you, how do you characterize that? I would characterize that as... Is that disingenuous? Absolutely. It's an okay. embellishment. Um, and you don't, for, for no reason. No reason at all. Um, I've heard similar comments from folk in the black community. Um, there is this... So I attended the, uh, in support of the Almoral 
Education Association uh, their event for uh, trying to achieve collective bargaining. Um, and there was this, this quote of, you know, people who look like me by her. And I'm like, all right, when I'm in the black community, most of the people don't even know who she is. And there is this, uh, this deal that there is some type of representation. But when we're getting shot up and all these other things, like, you know, she's nowhere to be found. And I think it's disingenuous to say, you know, people who look like me in, you know, to basically white folk who don't, you know, they're not going to go and verify, um, but not have any, have a, you know, have a different take with regard to the black community. Um, the other part, um, you know, there was a, there was a survey where 84 to 90% of the her constituents and the school board had identified a resolve that they, you know, that they wanted um, and that they had conveyed to her and the board itself. And they were like, no, we're not going to listen to that. That's, I mean, that's the primary role of a public servant is to listen to the people that you're serving and, you know, take into consideration. Um, you know, what was that? Say. Which topic specifically? Was I that the renaming? That, yes. That the was re the of schools? That was, yeah. Yeah. And, then, and I guess if, you, if the thing was to fall back on a policy, is well, our policy says this. So basically you say our policy says that we shouldn't listen to our constituents. That's not, that's not good leadership. Um, again, the, the discrepancy with regard to the SRO. Well, where's the, where, where'd the discrimination go? Where the, how did it become effective? And then the primary, I mean, my, one of my main deals, like, I have a teacher, a former teacher, who now works Almore County Public Schools, one of my best teachers uh, when I was over at Buford. And they're fighting for collective bargaining. Now, I understand that there's some movement um, you know, afoot and things have, they're gradually getting to the table, but this is something that the General Assembly had, you know, provided in 21, 2021, same time General Assembly provided the Police Oversight Board with guidance to be able to do this locally. They sat on it for two years before they started moving forward. And then there's this, this, this deal, this exclamation, oh, I'm for women's rights. Within the U.S., 75% of teachers are women. So if we're talking about, you know, women's rights, those economic rights and those other things flow into it as well. Katrina was talking about, or excuse me, um, Chairwoman Coulson, because she's the chair of the Admiral County School Board. She's yeah. a candidate for delegate. She was talking about uh, reproductive women's rights. Yes. And if I'm reading you correctly, you're saying you cannot be a champion for reproductive women's rights and at the same time, not champion collective bargaining for teachers when three quarters of the teachers are female. You say that that's hypocrisy or a catch twenty two. No, no, no. I say women's. I say women's rights collectively. That includes reproductive rights. Okay. That includes uh, protections against sexual uh, violence, uh, sexual assault, and domestic violence. Okay. That includes um, you know equal pay and, and those types of things. You can't you can't knock seventy five percent group of women and say, well. I'm not going to champion these rights, but I will champion your reproductive rights. That just sounds like it's you're taking a uh, uh, just a name. You're picking and choosing. Well, you're just do, you're just doing a sound bite. You know, you're just doing a sound bite, and that that sounds good. And so, and and I, Mr. Uh, Mr. Norris as well is like you know reproductive rights. Yada, yada. They're not talking about sexual assault and domestic violence. This is huge. This is this is something. I have friends and family who have encountered sexual assault and domestic violence. This is very personal for me. 
And the fact that we don't have um, more, you know, leaders stepping up and saying that this, that we need to fully address it, because it's not fully addressed, um, is, you know, is a challenge for me. So there are a whole gamut of, of women's rights um, that exist. It's not just reproductive um, that's out there. Um, and, you know, with regard to uh, the housing aspect, you know, some folk, you know, say that they've been working on housing for 20, 30 years. Housing affordability is now through the roof. Um, so this is Dave, Mr. North. Sure. Yeah. Housing affordability. This is, that's his platform. Housing affordability is through the roof. When you look at some of the other, you know, there's this, this, this uh, champion of, a world, you know, low income for the past 20, 30 years. Low income folk are still low income and they're still getting pushed out of Charlottesville. So where is that, where is that need necessarily going? If we want to talk about housing affordability, one of the things that I did, um, that I did see was this idea of a land trust, which is what, you know, our friend Keith Smith has been utilizing successfully, um, you know, here. Uh, in the investment community, a land trust is, is, is a valuable tool to utilize as well. And how that operates is like, let's say there's, you know, whatever, a $400,000 house on the market, uh, you have some capital input to be able to uh, basically bring that down to roughly 250000 um, and you're able to, you know, rent those out, or not rent those out, you're able to, you know, for teachers, you know, first responders to purchase those. People tied to AMI. Correct. Yeah, the trust Correct. owns the land. Correct. Yeah. And then, you can, and then you can repeat that process. And in some instances, you know, folk can walk away with, you know, significant capital to go and do some other things. Those are good. Those are solid ways to be able to, to keep, you know, uh, you know, homes affordable uh, around this space. The other aspect when we're looking at Charlottesville City uh, proper is that a lot of this is, a lot of the land is saturated. So the only way to really uh, uh, grow is to go up. And I think that's what the zoning uh, process is starting to do now. Um, and we, I mean, there's not, we have to be honest about the fact that, that the land is, is, is fully saturated. Now I'll go back to um, the low income space because, I, you know, uh, Governor Youngkin just gave, you know, whatever, $4 million to CRHA, gave another $4 million to PHA. You obviously have Senator um, uh, Kane and, and, and Warner who've, you know, given capital. Um, and that's, and that's, that's well and good. These are millions of dollars. The challenges that I have, so, so I believe the $4 million for CRHA is going on the 6th Street property. When we go over and we look at West Haven, West Haven, Foker, you got four months before you can get a door for kids, you know, for kids' room. You got you know paint chips. You're talking things. about repairs. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the living conditions. Living talk, conditions. These are the living conditions. When you go back to the hot spots, when you go back to the shooting on Hardy Drive, when you, these are these are all these all filter into that. This is what part of the problem is. So it's like where is the disconnect between the millions that's being given versus the folk that are being served? And you can't continue to. I mean, it's my understanding West Haven has continuously got pushed down on the redevelopment list. You can't continuously push folk down and then expect for them to say, you know, kumbaya and not have problems with, with poverty and shooting up stuff and, and things like that. You know, those, I don't, this, these, this is the, these, these instances with the gun violence, with the poverty and the low income space, they affect predominantly black folk in the black community. And that has been something that, that I have been frustrated by the entire time. 
uh, because it's like it's nothing. You know, we got a lot of naysay or not naysaying. We got a lot of hoopla, you know, and things going out here, buzzwords. But when you come down to it and you go knock on these doors and you talk to these folks, they're like, Psh, you know, what's going on? Nothing's going on. You know, and I don't that's that's not helpful. The the our market overall is constantly changing by private by private transactions. Um, and and we're you know, we're playing catch up to a lot of these uh, a lot of these challenges that are going on and it's it's all connected. The the policing, the schools, the uh, um, women's liberties, um, you know, veterans benefit or veterans rights, uh, LGBTQI rights, all of these are connected in, in terms of how we live together within the 54th district, you know. And, and we, ha we can't just look at, you know, one thing over here in, or one thing over there in isolation. These are all, these are all connected. The other part, the other thing that, I, that I've seen um, with regard, let's just take the criminal footprint. And this is my own observation. Um, so our criminal footprint seems to be from Nelson County over to Waynesboro Stanton out to Greene County, uh, down to, uh, what is this, Fluvanna, Louisa, and, and that, that seems to, and they're all coming here, in, in orange, and they're all coming here, and you know, that's, where, that's where a lot of this stuff is happening. To me, when, when I look at those pressures and everything, and, I, and I've you know, spoken to some other folk about this, what, what I see, whether we like it or not, is our community starting to have city problems. And if we're starting to have city problems, then we probably need to look uh, from a visionary perspective and look forward as, as to how we best address these or we're going to continue um, to have these challenges. So it's, I mean, it's, it's a number of factors um, that are out there. And we've got to be thoughtful about how we go about you know, solving them as opposed to just you know, a soundbite or something that sounds good. I'll say this again. This guy's the real deal. And I think this election very much changed with Cooper saying he's not going to run for delegate anymore, he's going to run for council. Mm -hmm. This is just one man's perspective here. Sure. I, I think of the four that were running when Cooper was still in the race, mm -hmm. he was going to come in fourth, he was still going to get votes. Mm -hmm. I think the votes that were heading Cooper's way, mm -hmm. I think are going to go your way now. Mm -hmm. And I think the person that has the most to benefit from Cooper dropping out of this race is you. Mm -hmm. Um, I think this race got a hell of a lot more competitive now with Cooper out, and now you have a three-person three race that's going to be pretty tight here. Yeah. I want to ask you this question. You're running as a Democrat this time. Sure. Council, you ran as an independent. Yes. I've said on this record many times, if you had run for council in 2019 as a Democrat, mm -hmm. you would have beaten Cena McGill. You may have beaten Michael Payne. Mm -hmm. Lloyd Snook, you would have been on council. The third spot would have either been Payne or McGill. Mm -hmm. Any regrets not running as a Democrat in 2019? You ran mm -hmm. as an independent. Mm -hmm. And then the second part of the question is, why are you running as a Democrat now? No, there's no regrets. I mean, I came here when I said, you know, I came back in, in, in 2018 or 2019. I said that I came here to do work. I didn't come here for a party identifier or whatever. I came here to do work for our community. I ended up uh, in the oversight space and in the minority business space. And that's what I've that's what I have been doing, um, and, and this is across um, this in political science courses across the country. This is you know across the nation at the local level. There is really no need for a party identifier when you're moving up to like a, a state capital or what have you. That's when things start to split off. What I what my focus on focus was 
at that point and still is, is on doing the work. Even, I mean, even some of these things like, I'm just here to do the work because people need the work done. That's, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, there, there is a band of folk that say, oh, the government can't solve all the problems, X, Y, Z. The government isn't solving any problems. Like, they aren't solving any problems. And, and you've got to get folk to be able to solve problems on behalf of the people that we serve. And you've got to do that, you know, without regard to, I mean, sure, there are some things that line up in, in terms of, you know, party identifier or whatever, but we've got to do the work. That's what people are seeking in their elected officials, people that are going to do the work and be real about the work and, and, and move forward. Um, so, no, I don't, I don't have any. I always knew that moving up or going down the road that this would be the course, but there was no, there was no focus on um, you know, that at the local level. Follow-up question for you. Sean Singletary, welcome to the show. <laughs> Catherine D'Souza is giving you props. Nice. She says Bellamy is awesome. I see Catherine three or four times a week. She's awesome herself. Yes, I love she a coach. Yeah. Um, question for me, and then I'll get to viewers and listeners. Viewers and listeners, if you have a question for the candidate, put them in the comment section, and I will relay the question live on air. Did you consider running for city council? Because no. I think it would have been a slam dunk, dude. No. No, not at all. No, because, I, again, the work that I had done on the oversight board for the past few years. This is the Police Civilian Review Board? Yes. Okay. Police, yes. Yeah. The work that I had done, I had already, I'd already seen how local government works. <laughs> I'd been a, a big part of You had a front row seat. Yes. Yeah. Literally been, and figuratively. <laughs> <laughs> I'd been a big part of that process, and quite frankly, I wasn't even, I wasn't even planning to do this. This wasn't on my agenda. I was going to do. I was working on my data science work. I was going to finish that work by the end of the summer and keep on moving, because that's what I'm doing. I'm doing some executive education data science classes, but I had to push pause on this because of the way things, you know, shaped up. I sat on a friend's couch and, I, you know, um, at the end of December, I was like, Psh, "Leave me alone. I don't, you know, I don't want to be involved because I was tired. Like I think I had just tired and burned yeah. unfairly. Yeah, literally. Yeah." And I and I had just I had just started to really come back to a space where like I'm chill, cool, and everything. But yeah, I you know I I'd given a lot, I'd put in a lot, and I did it for free. I was not paid, you know, for any of that. And so I saw you know some of the uh, machinations that were there, and I was just like, this is no, this isn't for me. And then I'm things- surprised you even got into this. I thought you were incredibly um, treated so poorly. Yeah. Um, I thought um, the contributions that you made to this community were significant and far outweighed um, how the community treated you. Yeah. I thought you getting pulled into that Brackney lawsuit, which the law and court has literally said this is frivolous and we can ignore it. Mm-hmm. It was so frivolous, the city didn't even respond to her. Mm-hmm. Literally. Mm-hmm. And then we hear from attorneys not tied to the Brackney lawsuit that the lawsuit was filed incorrectly from the first place, that this never had a shot. So this was either a pipe dream or a soap opera or, 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 or I don't even know what the heck she was doing. And she continues to tweet about Charles. This is me talking. This is not you. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I know you're going to take the high road here. I thought you were treated unfairly. <clears throat> like you bled for the city that you grew up in and then part of the city turned its back on you. Did you feel that way? <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I mean, I knew, I knew in politics you're going to take some, 
you're going to take some bruises, you're going to take some heat. That level I didn't expect. Right. But, you know, it's... You volunteered. (laughs) You volunteered, right? You were as a volunteer spot. Yes, it was, a, it was a volunteer spot, but at the same token, I had been through some challenging situations before, so it wasn't like I didn't know how to navigate, or it wasn't like I wasn't prepared for being able to do uh, what I needed to do. At the end of the day, what I said, you know, I did what I was supposed to do, and the court had said I acted within the parameters of my role. Were it not for my role, I wouldn't have been able to do anything, and so... I did my job in 2019 when I came on, uh, when we came on the board, or 2020 when I came on the board, uh, the complaint was that the 2019 ordinance had been watered down at the last minute. I had become chair in 2020, type A, DC, you know, you better get, put some points on the board. I knew I only had a year, and I knew that with the General Assembly providing that, uh, that authority, we had to get something on the board because that's what the people said that they wanted. I looked at the landscape about how we're going to navigate that. I didn't necessarily, you know, talk to or, or, or consult with anyone. I didn't have to. I like again. I've been in the business community. I've been in a business executive for some time. I know how to look at problems, identify solutions, and implement those solutions. So I looked at the landscape. I looked at you know how are we going to get this ordinance um, set and across the board. And at the end of the day, we got the ordinance set and across the board. Chair Mendez got operating procedures um, set in place. Now have a full board at a time where, you know, who knows what's going to happen with regard to the policing space, but we do have a space where folk who cannot necessarily afford a lawyer can go and raise the BS flag whenever those things happen, and that's there for them. So, you know, that, that's, that was my goal at the end of the day. I knew, yeah, that I was going to take some bruises, but at the same token, I also saw that, 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 that folk who were supposed to step up, they weren't stepping up. And I also knew that, that we would have been in a very different space had I not. I mean, I, I, uh, there's, there was major thought uh, into all of that. And I'll say, you know, thank you to, uh, to James Watson. Thank you to Jeff, Dr. Jeff Frazier for supporting, uh, for supporting me in that effort. Um, they, like, I didn't, they didn't know all the all, like all the details or everything at, throughout the process, but they knew my character. They knew what I was about. They knew that you know, w- you know what I wanted to accomplish for our community, and so and they supported me in that. And so uh, I'm forever grateful, you know, for that because without without that, like, we wouldn't have gotten through the transition uh, that took place in the board itself. So. Uh, multiple folks asking this question. Jojo Robinson asked this question. What makes you a progressive candidate? Uh, Mary McIntyre, um, friend of the program, has asked that about the candidates in this race. Yeah. What makes you guys progressive? Yeah. Um, I'm seeing it all over the feed here. Show us yours sure. on that topic. I mean, so, well, and this is the question that I've been asking since, 20, uh, since 20, uh, 2019. What, this, what do you mean by progressive? And no one has ever come out with a definition. It's a buzzword of what that means exactly. Yeah. And I'm saying, like you, you point out, you throw out these things. It says, "Oh, he's progressive." Well, what does that mean? If we're talking about advancement of women's freedoms, yes, that's me. If we're talking about, uh, you know, black liberation and advancement of black um, of, of black freedoms, yes, that's me. If we're talking, so is progressive candidate mean defund the police? And is that you? <laughs> is that progressive now? Is it? 
Is that partially dependent? I guess, like you said, there's no definition. Some We're, folks see that as progressive. Defunding. I mean, okay. So if you're going to if you're going to defund the police, are you also going to defund crime? Are you also going to defund these 19 year olds who aren't listening to being arrested and are out here, you know, shooting up each other? Are you going to defund them? How are you going to stop them? Good response. It's a true response. Yeah. Like yeah. it's. I mean, this is real. This is in the black neighborhood. Yeah. And most of these folks are outside of the black neighborhood. That are screaming who are saying defund. these things. Yeah. Correct. When we were at the community forum, you were there. I was there at the community forum. I was hearing folks that have spent decades, generations in black neighborhoods saying, we want you guys here, police. Yeah. Get here. Yeah. Help us. Get more people on the, on, on the beat. Yeah. That, and, that's, and that's what, and again, you take, you take the attitude of, well, you can't arrest everyone. You gotta you gotta implement some alternative solutions, but you still gotta police. This is what this is what this is what we want. You know, this is what's being said. And like y'all, if y'all aren't taking bodies, which they're not, if you don't have people in your circle in the past six months, I've had two. If you don't have those, you can't. You know, these progressive buzzwords like mean nothing. Um, I'll go back to I'll go back to this because this is something that I, that I recently learned. Um, so when I decided to to run for delegate, I was asked uh, by one of my friends, a couple of my friends, would I be the first black delegate? Um, and I knew that that I wasn't because I had a relative, James T. S. Taylor, who was the first black delegate after the Civil War. Um, he fought in uh, and, the, and the city did a proclamation to him or about him to my grandmother in 2017. Uh, he ran from the Confederacy up north to fight for the Union. Um, after the Civil War, he uh, got elected, one of the first 24 African Americans to be elected in Virginia to the Constitutional Convention. There he argued for, uh, for public schools uh, in addition to women's suffrage and everything else. Right here representing this community. That was, that was done. So his, and there was only a, a blurb mentioned about his father, who's Fairfax Taylor. Um, and I, like, I felt like something was missing. Fairfax is my grandfather. Um, and so I went and had to go and research him. And there's actually a UVA student who did a, a research deal on him last year uh, talking about, so he, he was a slave. He purchased his freedom directly from uh, Lincoln. And he was one, he was, the primary instigator for arguing for the separation of the First Baptist Churches, uh, the one on Park Street over to the one on, uh, on Main Street that exists today. Um, he'd argue for black liberation even before, um, you know, uh, I forget his name, uh, was George P. the guy who, George Swanson, the guy who was uh, admitted to uh, UVA, uh, UVA law. law. Yeah. yeah just he had was, a plaque by the library. Jim Hinchley led that charge. Correct. So he... So he was, um, so he was arguing for that like way back then, and we still have markers in our community of what my family did. That's a, that was on my mom's side, on my on my dad's side. My grandfather, you know, um, Holy Temple Church of God in Christ built, uh, you know, a church for the black community on 12th Street in that Grady space. Built affordable homes for black members of the community, and so my my roots in this community are deep. Um, and, and, that's, and that's where my heart is. When I, when I learned about um, James Taylor, my uncle, and Fairfax Taylor, it, it was like it came full circle for me because 
out of all my family members, I'm most like the two of them because military service, stepping up and, and leading and arguing for the benefit of others, you know, black liberation, the whole nine. Um, and so, like, this is, I mean, this is, when I say I have deep roots, I can prove that I have deep roots. I can show you that I have deep roots uh, to this community, to the 54th district. Um, and I just, that, I mean, it's in my soul, man. So um, Michael Guthrie um, watching the program. John Blair watching the program. Questions, are you ready? Okay, they're coming in fast and furious here. A lot of props, though, a lot, mainly props. Lonnie Murray, planning commissioner, Almoral County, when he's watching this show, he does not have his planning commission hat on. I make sure I caveat that. He's only asking questions as a citizen okay. and not as an elected official. I, I make sure I caveat that every time Lonnie offers a comment. I value his opinion. He's asking as a private citizen. Um, he's in your district, and he'd like to know what your opinion is of the Dillon rule, and would you support a home rule state? I mean, we, you know, same, same deal. Uh, you know, we were talking about this in 2019. Um, I do uh, see the value in, in having uh, home rule. Um, what is the what is the uh, the likelihood that the entire General Assembly will um, slim together? to none? Yeah. Yeah. So why would the General Assembly give up that power? Yes. Correct. Pretty much is what it comes down to, right? Correct. Yeah. And so you have to build relationships with so you got to what 140 people total you got to build significant relationships in two years yeah 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 significant relationships to be able to get the votes to be able to overturn that right and you know so that's i mean that uh, just we're looking realistically at that um versus what we can do today what we can do in the immediate future versus a long-term uh, approach so being realistic yeah. You have you to see be the value realistic. of home rule, yeah. but you see the realistic that this would be something unlikely for someone to do to convert from Dillon rule to home rule. Without you need you need significant votes to be yeah. able to do that. Yeah. You know, that's a lot of that's a lot of legwork across the Commonwealth to be able to get that change. Yeah. You know, and that's not a that's not a you know near future type of um, you know type of deal. Um, Grayson watching the program. He lives in North Downtown. He says this, Jerry, as you know, I watched just about all your shows, and I watched the interview with Miss Colson last Friday. I've always been impressed with Mr. Brown and how he carries himself, especially with how he handled himself throughout the Brackney lawsuit. He should be commended. I want to get some clarity here, and please let Mr. Brown know that our household is undecided of who we're voting for. Is he saying in his comments that he feels that Miss Colson is misrepresenting herself when it comes to her race with potential voters? I would say that Miss Colson, from my understanding, in the black community, um, there is a there is a different reception than is received in the white community. Fair, fair. Um, uh, Grayson, let us know if you have a follow-up. Co comments coming in fast and furious. Many teachers watching the program right now. Mm -hmm. I'm getting DMs and comments. Please get him on the record, collective bargaining and where he stands. <laughs> I, again, I was there at the second, at the second meeting uh, with you know, 100 other what was it, 100-plus other folk? Yep, uh, Thursday, a few yeah. Thursdays ago at the school yeah. board. In fact, your photo, I believe, was in a Seville Tomorrow article. It you was. were wearing red. I saw it was. your photo. I was, There's I was, my boy, Bellamy Brown, right I was there. Try, yeah. I was trying to hide in the back because it yeah. wasn't – I don't go to these things. It, for, it's not about you. Yeah. You're there to correct. listen to learn. Correct. Yeah. 
And well, I was there to support too. Yeah, right. Because right. they had, you know, you were they, in red. Yeah, yeah. Because they, I mean, and again, a former teacher, one of my best former teachers, was there. So, a hundred percent, I support uh, collective bargaining. Uh, the, at the state level, they even did a study to show the value of collective bargaining. You've got several jurisdictions that have already, you know, implemented it. Not just, you know, not just Charlottesville, but across Northern Virginia space as well. I fully believe that the teachers should be involved in part of the process as opposed to having it directed to them. And like, why are we, why, why this has taken two years to really get here if, you know, is mind boggling to me. Uh, Mary McIntyre, that should make you happy. Becca Saxon, that should make you happy right there. Well handled by the candidate. I concur with what he just said. Why it's taken this long is absurd. And the fact that the teachers do not have a seat at the negotiation table to formulate the plans of collective bargaining is a travesty. Um, I yeah. think we're in agreement here. And I think, and I think for Mr. Um, what's North Downtown? Grayson. Mr. Grayson. Yeah. I mean, that's one, of, that's one of the things there. I mean... You know, Miss Carlson is on this board. She's the chair, chair, chair yeah. of the board. Yeah. Why has it taken two years for the teachers to be able to collective bargain in her district? I think that is, candidate Carlson, I think that is a very fair question. I think that is a very fair question. Um, Bill McChesney says Mount Zion, that was on Ridge Street, was first. The other uh, was First Baptist on Park, was on Jefferson, and second, um, where Queen Charlotte Square is today. So he's, Which, offering, he's offering some clarity on the churches that we were talking about earlier in the interview. Well, no, 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 no. This is, there's, there's documentation. So this is what, so everybody was collective on the First Baptist in Maine. Okay. The black, I believe the black folk had to, you know, sit up top, obviously. There was, and this is, like, this is documented. There was, my grandfather, Fairfax Taylor, spoke for a lot of the black folk, and they were like, look, being led by a white pastor is not working for us. This is not okay for us, and we would like to have our own church. And so he led the fight to separate from that particular one to, to build over uh, on First Baptist in Maine. And this is, this is well-documented publicly. The whole nine, the Almore County uh, Historical, Almore Charlottesville Historical Society has the records and everything. So that's how that planned out. And the other part about it is, so... They are also one of the few African Americans that are buried over in Maplewood Cemetery. They got Taylor Street, that's named after them. They were prominent folk here in the community. A lot of the land where CFA is on right now, he owned that land. So these were, I mean, these were, back in the time of slavery, Civil War, these were not, you know, I mean, this is my stock that I come from. Yeah, right? he's speaking from uh, stuff he knows there. Um, yeah. New questions coming in fast and furious from a lot of voters. Um, this is from Albert Graves, who lives in Almoral County. Since you were on the Police Civilian Review Board, um, what changes would you immediately make within Charlottesville Police Department that would impact the community um, now and for the future? What would you like to see change with policing? Um, I, think, I think we're on that road. I think we are, we are getting out, not we. The police department is getting out into the community. It's starting to build those relationships. Again, I would like to see uh, value uh, with regard to the training um, in the Almore County space where the schools do touch in the 54th district, if, you know, with the SRO. 
is the SRO taking SRO training to be able to to uh, act you know adequately engage with the students um, as again being part of this holistic approach and how we um, you know affect young minds and 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 really work with them. Um, but for right now, again, you know, Chief Cotches, um hadn't you know been here six months, so I want to see or, or allow him to do his job and and, and see what comes out of that. Um, this question's come in, and, and put the questions in the feed, guys. We'll go about 15 more minutes here with the candidate. He's been kind to give us 50 minutes of his time so far. This is from Deep Throat on Twitter through a DM. This is for Mr. Brown. Um, he says this would probably require state constitutional amendment, but would you, Mr. Brown, support change to allow cities like Charlottesville to create homestead exemption assessment increase cap for property tax assessments? Um, I do know um, a little bit uh, about the homestead exemptions. I will say that I will have to uh, defer on that um, and look into that a bit more and, and, and come back with That's fair. a proper response. That's fair. What do you make of uh, housing getting out of control here? And I know where you stand on government. Yeah. Um, even if they kick, like, say, Almoro County. Almoro County is going to keep the real estate tax rate the same here. Mm -hmm. But assessments have upticked 12-plus percent. Mm -hmm. So just because the tax rate's keeping the same, the county's still getting a, a huge influx of incremental revenue because yeah. of the 12% increase in assessments here. Yeah. How is this impacting affordability, this local ecosystem? I don't know about you. I mean, you, you're a, we, we see the same thing here. I'm looking around this community. It's looking whiter and wealthier than ever before. Yeah, and I think that, again... Is that safe? Yeah, and again, when you... Okay, so let's, let's go to Scottsville, one of Ms. Carlson's favorite places. And you look at the homes out there, it's 435K. That's just down the road. You look at some of these other places, and I you know, did some other due diligence. Most of them are 435K or what have you. Where are those jobs coming from to be able to support that? You don't, you don't have it. That's, that, that's part of the issue. So in looking at this thing holistically across the board, um, you have the home prices. I uh, just uh, read a, a home analysis that said 60% of today's home prices are costs, are home costs. That means you got, uh, you got inflation, you got interest rates that are all baked into that. One of the avenues to be able to help alleviate that is to look at, look at what the per permitting process is. Is it running smoothly? Are there areas within local government that can help facilitate that um, a, bit, a bit more quicker? Because if you're if you're holding up projects while the costs are rising, you're, that's going to be you know uh, conveyed or passed on to to the consumer, and so there there are a number. Um, the Harvard Joint Center uh, for Housing Studies said, as so uh, through COVID, um, rents increased uh, for renters. Um, obviously, home prices increased, and some of the solutions were for the lower for the lower income folk. You know, have like subsidies and 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 um, um, income supports at that level. Um, you know, that's renters in both in in, in both the uh, well, I guess primarily renters. Um, and then the uh, at the other end, at the home the home buying folk, you gotta you gotta increase the housing stock, and you have to find a way uh, to do that effectively. And that's what will help. Um, alleviate and, and uh, the housing prices or stabilize the housing prices across the board. But here, again, who, who typically has a capital to be able to do that? As you said, it's, you know, it's, it's white folk. Um, I see, 
uh, in the data science space. I mean, you got AI and machine learning. I know Amazon is doing some things to try and get um, some underrepresented communities in that space. But these are where the jobs are. These are the and and this is and these are six-figure jobs. And that's what and that's what we have to get uh, uh, folk involved in. We got to get folk involved in in the trades uh, as well. Piedmont had uh, a list like about I guess about a month ago of like free trades that they put out. I happened to post that on Facebook, and it just like went around you know went went around like wildfire. And so that told me that somewhere there's a disconnect between what's being offered versus the people that are trying to get it, um, you know, get those new skills versus the businesses that want that need those skills. And so we have to we have to uh, emphasize that, um, and we got to get people participating um, in the local economy. In, in 2019, there were 17,000 people living in poverty uh, here in in the city. Um, I don't have the the exact number right now, but I would imagine that it's probably higher or they've either been pushed out. Um, and we can't, like, in order for, in order to get people that are living in poverty playing in the game, we got to give them options. We got to give them resources to be able to do that. For the young kids that are 19 years old, 15 and uh, 21 years old, we got to give them options. We got to give them hope uh, to, to some of these other decisions, you know, that they're making or that they're doing, you know. Um, we, we've talked Colson. Um, and I think you've been fair with what you've said. How about Norris? I mean, he, here's the tough part here. This is, while this is a Commonwealth race, yeah. this is still very much a local race. Yeah. And we both know Dave well. Yeah. I, I know you well. I know Dave well. I don't know Katrina, uh, candidate Colson, uh, Chairwoman Colson as well. Yeah. But I will work to get to know her better. Yeah. I mean, Dave, you, me, we know each other. We've had beers together. I mean, yeah, yeah. I would say that you're probably friends with Dave. <laughs> So I told so I told Dave uh, the next time that I will speak with him will be June twentieth after the primary. Yeah. Okay. Respect. So and that's and that's I mean that's because that, you're a competitor, right? It's because I like you can't you can't you cannot go out and and run in these races in perpetuity. It takes wear and tear on your body and everything else. So if you're going in it, you got to go in it. You know, you got to put it. You got to put it all in if you're going to do it well. And so from the, and I and I believe I know I'm confident that I have a lot to offer that I can represent our district really well, um, and and I have you know I have the capacity to uh, to do that. Um, the I think the thing that kind of drew my eye with regard to Miss Coulson we started off was really I mean just the teachers the collective bargaining and around here. When you grow up in the public school system, some of your teachers have kids that you that are your friends that you grow up with, and it's just a thing that you don't mess with public school teachers. So why that's being done here, I don't know. So that's kind of what really that was my ire with with Colson. Again, my ire with uh, you know Mr. Norris. I'm not a fan of black people living in low income in perpetuity while all this other stuff is going on and they're being left behind. And I think that a lot of, um, a lot of the aims have been you know, set toward that, toward that end. Again, if you're working on housing for 20 or 30 years and housing affordability is through the roof, if you're working uh, low income for 20 or 30 years and low income folk are still low income, you know, that's not, that's, and, mo and most of them are black, that's not cool, that's not okay with me. Um, Lee Elberson, CEO of Claiborne, um, says this is a fantastic show. 
Um, he's listening on LinkedIn. Questions, we'll take a few more guys before I wind down with a question of my own. Um, do you see this race being determined by which voting points? Colson straight up said this race determined by women productivity rights. Re reproductivity rights with women is what's going to determine this race. You buy that? I have, a, I have a hard time when I have when I have women who are older who are concerned about bullets coming through their homes. I have a hard time when you got families who are worried about is my kid going to be next? And that's what I said to, last Friday when she was on the show. She made the comment, this race is going to be determined by reproductive rights with women. I said, isn't the gun violence superseding this topic right here? They're all, so for me, all, all these points that are, that are on, my, on my platform, they're all equally important to me. But when we're talking about moving some of these things on, you know, ac across the dial... We got this thing that says, I don't care what's on your platform. This is what's happening right now. And right now, it's the gun violence. Right now, it's, it's families worried about a bullet coming through their home hitting their kid. That's where we are. And, and this, again... That's what my wife's worried about. Again, this is, this is in... Uh, there's, this is in you know, primarily city, some parts of the, some parts of the county. And there are, there are other areas of this community that are not affected by that. And that's, that's fine. But you can't just say because you're not affected by it that it doesn't exist because it very much does. It's in, it's in all the newspapers. It's what everybody's talking about. And we got to really, you know, come together and, and, and really solve this. I mean, I, have, I am a strong supporter of now Congresswoman Jennifer McClellan. And she has been the pioneer. You went to Richmond. There was a photo of you guys. That's, yeah. I mean, like, I've supported when she ran for governor in 2019, like, I was there supporting her then. I met her in Sorensen when I went there. And, like, she gets it. She gets it. Abigail Spanberger, same way, gets it. And, that, and for me, and what I was going through is that Congresswoman McClellan has been the number one champion of women's reproductive rights within, within the Commonwealth. You can't get any better than that. So, like, I'm not, I will never purport to tell... My philosophy on women's rights, and this goes back to um, Abraham Lincoln had a quote that said, you know, uh, when you have a group or a faction of folk who say that only rich people or only, only rich men or only white men are entitled to life, liberty, uh, or the pursuit of happiness, that you would go back and you would look at the Declaration of Independence and that you would declare truth, that that is wrong. And so, like, like for me, I like... When it comes to women's rights, my motto is leave her alone. Whether it comes to her job, whether it comes to her reproductive rights. Leave her alone and let her make her own decision. You can just say leave her alone and okay. just, like, boom. She's already, I mean, she's got her, her own mind. She can do whatever you, leave her alone. That's what, that's what it is. I like that. You know, and, that, and that's the way it should be. Yeah. When you, when you look at the Constitution, when you look at the Declaration of Independence, it doesn't matter where you were engrafted in, whether black, white, women, whatever, that is applicable. Leave her alone. You know, and, and, and we, you know, yeah. It's, we, I like that. This, is, this, has been, like that. this has been a, we have had a paternalistic society for far too long. 
for far too long. And I'll tell, and I'll, I mean, I'll go back to my faith aspect of this. And I'm not talking about man-made faith. I'm talking about following Jesus' faith. You're an imperfect person, but you're called to love your neighbor as yourself. Whenever, whenever he came down or he, he did his thing on earth, wherever he went, and societies where women were subjected and treated as second class, he always lifted them up to their proper role, which is where they should be. And so leave her alone. Let her, let her, do, let her get her economic rights. Let her have her reproductive rights. Let her you know, go out and I've worked, there are countless number of women that I've worked for that have been like phenomenal leaders. And you can't tell me that women aren't capable or, or X, Y, Z. So I'll never buy into this idea that women should be treated as second class or what have you. Well said. Um, two questions left. One from the mayor of McIntyre and then one from me. Lisa Costello is watching on Cherry Avenue. Got a lot of people watching you here. Um, does upzoning in the city of Charlottesville create affordability when it's all said and done? Again, I think you have to, there has to be a lot of factors that go into it. One, permitting price, the permitting process. Two, the cost of materials as this process is going on. Three, how long, you know, how long it takes to navigate through this, through this entire process. If we can get that process flowing smoothly, perhaps. But again, the market, what is the market saying on the outside? The market is saying you can go over to Dairy Market and buy a scarf for, what, $100. Who's paying, who's paying that? Not someone down in West Haven, not someone down who's living on a fixed income or what have you. So you have to, you can't, we can, we can talk about building all these afford houses and affordability and, every, and everything else. But if you're not building jobs to go along with it, how are these going to be affordable? How are these going to, how is this going to work? You know, and we just, the infrastructure for jobs is, is, is crap. And going back to infrastructure, when we talk about you know, some of these other, other aspects where low-income folk are having to use the transit system to get around and the transit system isn't effective, that plays a role into the affordability and everything else as well. So it's, you know, it's, it just depends on how quickly we can get a lot of these things moving and you know, what resistance is there, how long it takes to navigate that. Um, but again, the way, I, the way I see it, or the way the factors are coming in, I mean, we're going vertical, you know, and it's just a matter of, you know, how, how we get there. Uh, Jonathan's watching it now, Marlo. Jerry, this guy's fantastic. This was my first um, touch with Bellamy Brown. This interview has been great. Please welcome him back on the show so more folks can see his common sense approach to politics. Thank you for this guest. I'll close with this topic, this question from yours truly. Um, why should folks vote Mr. Bellamy Brown? <laughs> no, that, that's a great question. I think folks should vote for me uh, because I have a, a documented history of service, uh, legacy of service to our community. I've already done my own service, legacy of service to our community. Um, I understand the public school system because I've gone through the public school system. I'm not from Germany. I'm not from some place that, you know, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm ashamed to say publicly. Um, and I'm, I'm straightforward. Like at the end of the day, like I'm a, I want to positively make an impact on the lives of the people in our district. Um, and certainly we need it at the lower income level 
like triage, like yesterday, um, and just really, you know, just make it better for everyone across the board. And that's that's a process. You know, I'll do, you know, do my due diligence or do my do my time if elected, and 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 make things you know better for for everyone across the board. Chef Ralph Brown Sr. Yes, giving you some props. Yeah, and the other thing, um, I forgot. There's so, there's so much that's out there. I mean, it's oh the, yeah. The other thing is um, when it comes to so you know going back to the continued emphasis on civilian oversight and policing. Most of the folk that are being policed are black, um, and I doubt that you know Mr. Norris can talk about a policing encounter that he's had um, negatively. I, and I doubt that Ms. Coulson can do can do the same. And when we the work that you know the board did to really get some things into a place to where, you know, again, people can call, um, can call BS. That, I mean, that was significant. That was born out of a negative policing incident in Fairfax County, and you can't, neither one of them are going to be able to tell the story about, you know, having a, a, a policing encounter, you know, like that. And, and that's, I mean, that's huge. We talk, our system um, in the U.S., it's two of them. We have an economic system, and we have a physical freedom, um, you know, legal system. And you got to get folk operating in both. You got to get folk in a space to where they can make money to take care of their family and do what they need to do. And you got to get folk in a space to where the criminal justice system is not infringing upon their liberties or what have you, and they can go out and, and live productive and meaningful lives. Um, if we look at some of these kids, uh, you know, again, 19, uh, 15 to 19 year old plus, we could ask the question. Where you know, let's say where where is where is the father, and more than likely we could probably say the criminal justice system got him, and and you have to look at our country's long legacy of doing that to black folk. They can't tell that story. They'll never be able to tell that story. They'll never be able to understand that story. And if we, and that's progressive. If we want to talk about progressive, that's progressive. So where can we learn more? About the campaign. Sure. So you can learn more um, at bellamybrownfordelegate.com. Okay. Um, yeah, and that, and that has, I mean, that you'll have everything there, um, bellamybrownfordelegate.com. Okay. I've got, uh, you know, my backstory. I've got my, 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 you know, issues. We will have meet and greets there. If you want to host a meet and greet, you know, I'd be happy um, to, uh, to, to come by. You can, you know, uh, send an email at friends of... Uh, Bellamy Brown at yahoo.com or you can actually go on the site um, there's a place there would love for you to um, you know if you like what we're about definitely contribute financially to our campaign um, and you know tell tell your friends um, and and really you know help spread the word over these next um, you know 90 or so days so that we can come out um, with a victory and and an opportunity to serve our serve our district as a whole Bellamy Brown for delegate.com the website I'm on there now it's a nice website easy to navigate Per usual, dude, you, you hit a grand slam. For those that are asking, I will um, see if we can get the candidate back on the show in the weeks to come. The primary is June 20th. June 20th. So will we know, what, the 21st? Will there be votes to count? Will we have an idea the 21st of June who wins this? So this is my, and in this process, I have seen uh, with regard to the Department of Elections and just the process across the board. There's a lot of nuances going on. There are a lot of changes that are going on. Uh-huh. Uh, my impression, just from what I've experienced, possibly not. Okay. But 
depending on how they get these these. So the mail-ins and the absentees will take longer. Is that what would hold it up? I don't. No, no, no. I'm talking about just. I mean, again, this is just my. This is not. You know, I don't have any inside knowledge or whatever. But just the way that they're changing, they're changing the districts. The way that all these things are are feeding into the uh, Department of Election system. I would say. Um, I don't know. It probably could be the next day. I just. I, I don't we'll think see. it's clean. I don't think yeah. it's clean. Understood. Yeah. Understood. So, guys, the primary is, like, legitimately a little over 90 days away. Yeah. Like, 94 days away here. Um, we appreciate his time. When you see him around town, give him props for the job he's doing. He's doing the work, and he's doing the work in a way where it's not looking for attention, but he's doing the work in a way that is genuinely for the benefit of the community. And he's done that since I've known him since 2019. It's all about what's good for the community. 100%. Um, Judah Wickhauer is the director. Job well done today. Belby Brown. My name is Jerry Miller. Guys, I Love Seville show on a Friday. Enjoy your St. Patty's Day. We're back in the saddle Monday at 12.30. So long, everybody. You crushed that. He's going to tell us when the mics are off. We'll be off here in a matter of seconds. Gee, I got the 2.30.